scripture reading this evening will be read from Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 23. Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 23. From that time forth, Jesus began to show unto his disciples how they, how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get behind me, Satan, thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Good evening and welcome again. We're grateful for your presence tonight. We are looking at Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 23, the passage that Micah read for us just a moment ago. We're going to be talking about the importance of being mindful of the things of God. And before we do so, I do want to express appreciation to those who are visiting. We're always glad that you come our way. We encourage you to come back and be with us at every opportunity that you have. We're always thankful to have visitors in our midst, and we trust that you will find us a friendly congregation and that if there is anything that we can do for you, we want to certainly try to do that. As we look at Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 23 tonight, I want us to think for a moment or two about the importance of being mindful of the things of God. We live in a world that in many respects has a clouded perception of what is really important. People tend to look at life through clouded lens. And there's really a battle going on. The battle is between that which is eternal and that which is temporal. That which is spiritual and that which is material. Tonight I want us to look at a passage that Matthew records for us about Jesus and the disciples and the fact that he tells them about his impending death. And specifically we want to note the reaction of the apostle Peter. And so first of all let me call your attention to the road before Jesus. In verse 21, we have the Lord's revelation of his work. Jesus came into this world with a mission. Sometimes we talk about the heaven-sent mission of the Son of God. Jesus came into the world. He understood exactly what he was to do. Granted, his disciples and those about him, in many respects, misunderstood the nature of his work. They misunderstood the nature of the kingdom of God. The Jews, by and large, they were looking for a physical kingdom. And yet Jesus talked about a spiritual kingdom. As we look at verse 21, Jesus begins by telling the disciples some of the events that will lead to his death and ultimate resurrection. Verse 21 from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised again the third day. You need to understand that 
Jesus had just asked his disciples what people were saying about him. He wanted to know, whom do men say that I the son of man am? And they responded by saying, some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Jesus then asked the penetrating question, but whom do you say that I am? Simon Peter spoke up and said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus then said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed it to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say unto you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And so we have this great confession and the promise to build the church. In verse 20, then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. And I think about those that would seek to somehow hinder his work and Jesus here in a very forthright way tells them that they're not to make known his identity. But in verse 21, he begins to tell them the things that will ultimately lead to his sacrifice for the human family. He really identifies four very specific things. First of all, he talks about the place where he would die. He said that he had to go to Jerusalem. Now, the Bible tells us that Jesus was crucified just outside the walls of Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 23, verse 33, Luke tells us when they came to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors or the thieves, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And so just outside the city walls, Jesus was crucified. He was lifted up on Calvary, Golgotha, the place of the skull. And then secondly, he identifies some of the people responsible for his death. He speaks of the elders. I think about those individuals who were a part of the Jewish Sanhedrin, that council of men, and we see their work more noticeably in the book of Acts. And we think about the opposition that the Jews manifested towards the people of God in the first century. He speaks of the elders, the chief priests, and of course we are mindful of the Jewish high priests, those who were presently serving, those who had previously served, and then the scribes. So here were some that would be responsible for the death of Jesus. Now, the Jews, they were the ones that were intent on putting the Son of God to death. But they needed the Romans to carry that out. And so the two worked in harmony with one another. But then thirdly, he talks about the purpose of his death, or he talks about the fact that he is going to die. He said he's going to suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed. Now, you just think for a moment about had you been in the place of the disciples. You've been spending time with the Lord Jesus Christ. You've heard him preach. You've seen him perform the miraculous. You think about this coming kingdom, the church, and all of the great blessings and benefits that would be associated with that, and now your leader tells you, look, I'm gonna die. No doubt that hit hard. Well, why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus Christ come to earth? Well, we know that Jesus came to earth because 
As I mentioned a moment ago, he had a heaven-sent mission. In John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus said, My work, my meat, is to do the will of him who sent me. In John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus would say, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. In John chapter 17, at verse 21, Jesus said, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But he said, for this purpose have I come to this hour. Jesus knew that he had a date with the cross. In other words, he understood that the cross loomed before him that he would suffer, bleed, and die for the human family. You remember what Jesus said in Luke 19, 10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost? Do you remember what the angel of God said to Joseph as recorded by Matthew in chapter, 20, in chapter 1, verse 21, when he said that Mary would give birth to a son, that being Jesus, and he said he will save his people from their sins. How would Jesus do that? By dying. By dying on Calvary's cross. And then there's a fourth thing that Jesus makes mention of. And that is his power over death. He speaks of the fact that he's going to be raised again the third day. Now in John chapter 2, Jesus was met with opposition when he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He wasn't talking about a physical temple. He was talking about the temple of his body. Jesus spoke, he foretold of his resurrection. The Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament writers, they foretold of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that his soul would not be left in Hades. Well, we know that the Bible tells us very plainly that Jesus was indeed resurrected from the dead on the third day. Matthew tells us in chapter 28, the announcement was made that Jesus is not here, he is risen. The Christian religion stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If the resurrection is not true, Paul said our faith is vain, our preaching is vain, and we're still in sin. Paul would say in Romans chapter one at verse four, that Jesus was declared to be the son of God with power by the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. So Jesus here, in a very forthright way, talks about where he would die, the suffering that he would meet, those who would be responsible for his death, and then ultimately his resurrection. But now I want to call attention to verse 22 because here we have the reaction to the words of Jesus. And really, when you look at verse 22, what you find out is the Lord is rebuked for what he said about his work. And the one who rebuked him was the apostle Peter. So listen to verse 22. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. So here we have the apostle Peter reproving the Lord over the events that are about to transpire. Two things here. Number one, I think about the, mist the misstep of the Apostle Peter. What do I mean when I say that there was a misstep on the part of Peter? 
Well, Jesus was the Messiah, was he not? He was the Son of God. He was the great teacher. And the disciples, the apostles, they were what? They were the ones who were to learn from the teacher. And so in effect, what you have is Peter assuming the role of the teacher. I mean, you just imagine the apostle Peter pulling the Lord to the side and saying, wait a minute, Lord. This will never happen to you. Well, how do you know that, Peter? You're talking to the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. And as the Son of God, surely he knows what's going to happen. And you're saying this will never occur. And then I think that there was a basic misunderstanding on the part of Peter. And Peter wasn't alone. We talk about the apostles, the disciples of Christ, and I think that they, like many of us, we are moving in our relationship with the Lord from a spiritual vantage point. In other words, we're growing, we're learning. We're not a finished product. Peter and the other apostles, they were not a finished product. They did not have supreme knowledge. As a matter of fact, the Bible says from that time Jesus began to show his disciples. And so I, the, the picture that I have is the Lord Jesus Christ calling the disciples to the side and sharing with them bits and pieces of information. And some of the things that the Lord would have to say, no doubt, were mind-boggling. And this is one of those instances. Peter misunderstood, in large part, the work of Jesus. Now, I said just a moment ago that Jesus came into this world to redeem the human family. He came to save us from sin. The only way that could be accomplished would be to give his life as a ransom for sin. In the book of Revelation, chapter 13, verse 8, the Bible talks about the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. What you and I need to understand is God had this plan in mind before he ever laid the foundation of the world. Before he ever created Adam and Eve, he had a divine plan in mind. God the Father was the architect. In other words, God the Father is the one that designed this plan of redemption. Jesus Christ was the agent by which this plan would be consummated. The Holy Spirit, the third member of the Godhead, would be the one that would preserve the teaching and work of Jesus in this book that we call the Bible. And so Jesus was the agent by which the world would be saved. And you read about the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and you look firsthand at his dealings with the human family. Jesus came to save men from sin. If we ever lose sight of that, we lose sight of the gospel. The Bible still reads, but God commendeth his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Paul would write that. Peter, and I mentioned just a moment ago that there was the misstep by Peter and the misunderstanding of Peter. It's interesting that years later, he would write in his letter about the death of Jesus. 
In 1 Peter chapter 1, he would say, we have been redeemed not with corruptible things, but with incorruptible by Jesus Christ. In other words, we haven't been redeemed by silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. In chapter two, the apostle Peter would say in 1 Peter, that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we being dead unto sin might live unto righteousness. And so Peter may have been mistaken at this point in time in his life and at this point in time in the ministry of Jesus. But he came to appreciate the work of Jesus. And then you look at Acts chapter two, the very first gospel sermon that has been recorded for us was by whom? Peter. Peter preached the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and he also underscored the fact that Jesus now reigns at the Father's right hand. But now I want to call your attention in the third place to the response by Jesus. And note, if you would, how the Lord Jesus Christ deals with Peter. Look at verse 23. In verse 23, Matthew tells us that the Lord turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense, a stumbling block to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Now, as you, as you think about the reproof by the Lord, to the apostle Peter, as you think about the fact that he reproved him, I want you to, to just pause and think for a minute. Go back and look at Peter's earlier conviction. Peter had just said Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God. It was based on that great confession that the Lord Jesus Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So Peter's just made this great confession. The Lord has said he's gonna build the church and then he turns right around and says what? Far be it from you, Lord. This will never happen to you. Well, you look at his earlier conviction and then I think you see his evident confusion. Listen again to what Jesus said. Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Is it not the case that sometimes we, like Peter, look at things through earthly lens rather than eternal lens. Peter was, he was misunderstood, or rather he misunderstood the whole nature of the work of Jesus, at least at this point in time. I think sometimes we as members of the human family and even members of the church, our, our minds are not in tune with the will of God. What was the will of God? The will of God was for Jesus to come to this earth, live among men, die for sin, be raised the third day, ascend to heaven, 
and one day come again. Well, Peter missed that. But if you look at what the Lord said, you're not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Is it not the case that in many respects we get so caught up with the mundane things of life, with life itself, that we get out of tune, out of harmony with the will of God because we're so focused on the here and now. Let me just, let me just cite for you some things that I believe we ought to learn from this. Number one, I think that we need to understand the importance of investing in the future. When you, when you think about investing in the future, I want to link to that a second thing. And that is the importance of emphasizing spiritual things in our lives. Our lives can sometimes get out of balance. There are individuals in the church, many people in the world, who are so caught up with life, with their job, with their human interest, with their clubs, with their hobbies, and the things of life that they lose sight of what's really important. What's more important? That which is eternal or that which is temporal and transitory? What's more important, that which is spiritual or that which is material? If you talk to people in the world, their response would be the here and now. That's what's most important. When you talk to members of the church, what would their response be? Well, many of us would say that which is eternal is important, that which is spiritual is important. Here's the problem, here's the rub. Many times that's what we say, that's what we say we believe, we just don't live like that. We live as if what's really important are the temporal, transitory things of life. We live as if the material outweighs the spiritual. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, but rather the exhortation is to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. What the Lord's saying is, what we need to do is bank with heaven. We need to understand the importance of investing in the future. There are a lot of people that are worried about investing in the here and now, and they are all about life today. Let me tell you what, one day this life will come to a swift end. I heard an individual not long ago say that when he turned 65, someone asked him this profound question. What is the most startling thing you have learned in 65 years? And his response, the brevity of life. Let me tell you what, life will get by you so fast. James compared life to a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Job said, man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. It just seemed like yesterday. And yet, yesterday was 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 
That's how fast life moves. That's why I said we need to invest in the future. Peter was chided by the Lord because he wasn't mindful of the things of God. If we're not careful, we can become so consumed with the things of man, the material, the transitory things of life, that we lose sight of what's really important. We lose sight of the eternal, of that which is spiritual in nature. Let me also add this. When you weigh the spiritual and the material, what, what's going to bring greater satisfaction? Now, do we pride ourselves in the blessings of this life? I'm sure we do. Are we grateful for the advancements that, that we've made in, in our careers or in our schooling? I'm sure we are. Are we thankful for the material things that God has blessed us with? Absolutely. But the material things of life should not outweigh the spiritual. So when we talk about being mindful of the things of God, my encouragement to us would be to invest in the future and one way to do that, accentuate those things that are spiritual in nature. You will never grow tired reading this book that we call the Bible. The more you read this book, the greater the appreciation you'll have for it. I think about the words of the psalmist in Psalm 119, 97, when he said, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. I do not believe that a, new, a newborn babe in Christ, that is a new Christian, has the kind of, a, of appreciation for the word of God that someone who's been in the faith for 30 years that's been reading and studying and meditating on this book day and night. But I can tell you what, this is the book of all books. I have been blessed through the years to have a lot of books. And a lot of the books that I have in my library today, I don't need them anymore. You know why? Because they're all online. But every book I have, I would gladly surrender for this one book, the Bible. This is the only book that has the words of eternal life. This is the only book that I know that can guide me from earth to heaven. Now think about what Peter said. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. James said, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. How are we going to draw closer to God if we never open this book? How are we going to become more mindful of the things of God if we never study this book? It may be the case that we are out of tune in terms of God's will because we're not spending enough time in this book. The more I read and study this book and the deeper I study this book and the more I meditate on it, the more I can see the will of God the greater my appreciation for what the Lord has done for me in this life. The world may not understand everything that the Lord has done on their behalf, but we do. And the reason we do is because we're striving to have a spiritual mindset. Let me suggest a third thing. And that is when we talk about being mindful of the things of God and not of the things of men, one of the things that that necessitates is making 
the Lord's church and everything that it encompasses a priority. We need to look at the Lord's work with a sense of urgency. Far too many people in the body of Christ have not made the work of the church a priority. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. The word first means before anything else in time and place. What Jesus is saying is he is number one. He accepts nothing less than being number one. If we're mindful of the things of men and not the things of God, guess what? The church will not be a priority. The work of the church will not be a priority. Worship will not be a priority. Studying the word will not be a priority. And so we have to look at life through spiritual lens. And when I think about the overall work of the church, Here's what we need to see. This isn't my church. This isn't any one person's church. It's the Lord's church. The success or failure of this congregation does not rest on me. It does not rest on the eldership. It doesn't rest on, on Jared. It doesn't rest on Billy. It doesn't rest on any one person. The success or failure of this church is in our hands collectively. Now, do we need to, to be encouraging some people to step up to the plate and become more invo involved? Absolutely. Do we need to be in the ears of some people and say, you know what, you need to become more faithful to the Lord? Yes, we do. How do I know that? Because you're not here. You're not here when you ought to be here. I never see you back on Sunday night. I never see you here on Wednesday night. They need to hear that. Who do they need to hear it from? They need to hear it from you and me, all of us together. The work of the church has to be a priority. It has to be before anything else. When you look at the early church, go back and read the book of Acts. One of the things that just astounds me is the growth of the church. You know why the church was growing? Because people were committed to the Lord. They were convicted about the Lord. And so wherever they went, whatever they did, let me tell you what was on their lips. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now I want to ask this question. If the early church grew spiritually and numerically, can the church in the 21st century do the same? Can we? The answer is yes. But the answer is no. If we don't change our ways. In other words, if we don't start acting like they did in the first century, the church will never grow. It'll never be what it ought to be and what it could be. What does that encompass? It encompasses us developing a mind for God. I want to close by saying this. 
you and I, we have to decide what's important. Now, when you look at verses 21 through 23 in Matthew chapter 16, you see the Lord Jesus Christ in a very plain and forthright way talking about the events that would ultimately lead to Calvary. Peter misunderstood the whole nature of the thing at that point in time. And the Lord, I believe, sought to get him back on track. It may be the case that as a member of the church today, we misunderstand what we're supposed to be about. It may be the case that we misunderstand what it means to be a child of God, to be a Christian, to, to wear the name of a saint. But what I would encourage us to do is to reprogram our thinking, to get in tune with the will of God, to understand this is what God wants for me, and this is what God wants from his church. And so here's the question, how can I best accomplish that? I can best accomplish that by yielding my will to his will, by taking the role of a servant and basically saying, here my Lord, send me. If you're here tonight and you're not a New Testament Christian, then our plea to you is to come to Christ, to believe that he is the Son of God, to not just believe that Jesus is the Son of God, to be willing to repent of every sin, that is to get out of the sinning business, to confess his name before others as the eunuch did, recorded by Luke in Acts chapter eight, verse 37. To be immersed in a watery grave of baptism, to rise to walk in newness of life so that you can contact the blood of Christ and be afforded all those great spiritual blessings that we read about in scripture. Now it may be that you're here tonight you're a member of the church, but the truth is this. You're not mindful of the things of God. You're not mindful of the things of God in word or deed. So here's, here's what we want you to do. Get back on track. Not just what we want you to do, that's what the Lord wants you to do. We want you to get back in tune with God's will. I promise you this, if you'll live your life in conformity to this book, you will live with no regrets. You live your life outside the will of God and outside the sphere of this book, I promise you, you will have so many regrets you won't be able to count them. I see it every day in the world. People living for God, people living without God. You, you can only make that decision. I can't make it for you. And so tonight, we encourage you, come as we stand and sing.